This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me today is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. Welcome back. Thank you. Part of the team now? Yes. We need climatologists on the team. I mean, I know a little bit about it, but, you know, you don't have to laugh. My knowledge is minimal. I'm Some, sure you know plenty. Something bigger than weather. That's how I describe <laughs> it. Dr. Lauren. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? The American one, if you can't tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm good. And Dr. Catherine. Good morning. I'm going to slightly saw back. Lucky I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. I'll, I'll see you after the show. Yeah, perfect. And we've got Liv doing our Twitter feed. Liv doesn't come in that often these days. She's all grown up. Anyway, still good. I remember when she was 16 and, you know, couldn't wait to get in the door and now she's always busy at parties. And <laughs> anyway, we've got an hour of science for you folks. We've got some great guests. We're talking to an oncologist, we're talking to a, a bio-researcher and we're talking to an engineer. And he's been on the show before, although he reminded me, I thought it was last week, but actually it was 13 years ago or 14, 15 years ago when he was last here, so a little way back. My memory's failing. But we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Linden, what's happening in the world? Well, not really what's happening in the world, what's happening here. I suppose the big news in climate this week is, you might have seen it, Victoria has just had its driest June on record. Did anybody else see that? I saw that there was no bloody snow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're kind of related. So we've had the driest June on record. It's the driest June since the Bureau's official observations began in 1900. Wow. And it has just smashed it out of the park in terms of records. So the... As a state average, we've had about 13.5 millimetres of rain across all of Victoria, and that is about 9 millimetres drier than the last record, which was in 1944, in June 1944, at the end of the World War II drought. So it's not just Victoria that's been dry. We've had uh, southwestern WA and coastal South Australia has also had a dry start to winter. I don't know about you guys, but it has been kind of nice having clear, sunny days. crisp. Crisp and dry commutes, uh, but it hasn't been great for the wheat districts. We've had a lot of dry mm. conditions over the wheat districts, which isn't ideal. Uh, and as you said, Dr. Shane, not only have we had dry conditions, but it's also been pretty chilly. I don't know mm. if anybody else noticed mm. that. I like this the, the warming blanket of clouds we usually get in winter. <laughs> exactly, that's right, because we haven't had yeah. that much rain, so we haven't had as many clouds. So it's also mm. been much colder than average in that area, which means frosty mornings, which is also pretty not ideal ideal for wheat for yeah, uh, wheat crops for anything for growing. Yeah, so exactly. so can I ask how do we so when we talk about climate we talk about climate change mm-hmm. and this this is you know we say well you know we've, how do we know this isn't El Nino, La Nina mm-hmm. these long term cycles mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. well do we El- know El Nino and La Nina, we monitor that quite closely. Mm-hmm. The Bureau monitors that a lot. Yep. And we don't have those ocean conditions in the Pacific, those atmospheric conditions that we normally associate with El Nino. Right. What we've got instead this winter so far is higher than average pressure over southern Australia. So what normally happens, it's warm at the tropics, the sun mm-hmm. warms the air there, and warm air, what does it do? It rises. It rises, that's yeah. right. Good way. <laughs> <laughs> well I, get, I get a star. <laughs> Warm air rises. You see, these two jumped in. <laughs> You're like, oh, it smells bad. No, it rises. <laughs> it rises at the tropics and then it cools. And as it cools, 
uh, it sinks and it sinks around at about 30 to 60 degrees south. So at 30 and 60 degrees in the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere, we get these bands, this big belt of high pressure system, mm. right? Now in Australia, that in the summer time, it sits down here, down in the south, so we get warm, Beautiful dry weather. summer days. Yep. And in the wintertime, it normally moves up, sits right. about the latitude of Cupipedi, and that means that the cold fronts and the low-pressure systems can bring rain to us in the wintertime. Mm. But this year, it has just stayed right down here. I don't know, it loves the footy or something, it's just sticking right. around down south, and it's also much stronger than normal. So that just means the cold fronts and the high-pressure systems just aren't making it. And, and one thing I've noticed, and I'm not sure if this is just my imagination, but I'm a, I'm a bit of a weather nut. You know, <laughs> Andrea from the Bureau knows this. I'm always on the on the weather stuff. But it seems as though a lot of these systems are moving slower across our continent. Is that just my imagination, or is it that there's not as many of them? Like when you get two gigantic sort of highs just hanging around, it seems like nothing's happening, whereas when you get lots of the sort of more turbulent weather down south, it seems like, uh, uh, maybe it's my imagination, but it seems as though we're stuck in a cycle for longer at the moment. Yeah, I guess these high-pressure systems are a bit slower. They're yeah. a bit sort of bigger, clunkier to move yeah. around, whereas the cold fronts and the lows, a bit more energetic, they move mm. a little bit quicker. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And this pattern... I mean, you can't, we can't attribute it an individual thing to climate change, but this sort of signal of high pressure systems moving further south is, is forecast in a lot of climate models. So the Bureau is watching this quite closely, I think, to see mm. what's going to happen because the forecasts, the climate outlooks are suggesting that this is going to continue for the next couple of months. I do not like the sound of that at yeah. all. I like a bit of snow. Take the kids to the mm, snow. It's perfect snow-making conditions yeah, is what yeah, I've heard. I'm yeah. not a skier, but that's what I've heard. Yeah, no, well, they, because they need the very cold temperatures and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But exactly. they, yeah, no clouds, mm-hmm. no rain, mm. no snow. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Dr. Lauren, cheer us up. Uh, well, I'm a skier myself, so I'm a bit, yeah, yeah a bit saddened by this news. Um, I, my science news for this week is a study that just came out of Monash University. Um, so it was a study looking at these little birds called fairy, wren, fairy wrens, and they found that they actually adjust their risk-taking behavior after un- undergoing a color change from brown to blue, which sort of typically typically happens um, in autumn, so March and April um, through to October. And they are actually becoming more cautious when they're brightly colored. So most of us have probably heard before, you know, that um, many males in different species, species have different colors to attract females. But um, we might not have heard, or I hadn't heard, that there are risks associated with these brighter colors that they display. So it makes them, you know, more easily to be seen by predators, and that kind of gives them a higher risk of being eaten, unfortunately. Um, but it also involves changes in their behavior to mitigate these risks. So, for example, they might spend more time looking out for predators and, and keeping an eye, um, keeping an eye out, and they also might be more responsive to perceived threats. And these behaviors matter because they reduce the time available for foraging for food and um, are energetically very um, expensive. So this study looked to test these behaviors in fairy wrens, which are vulnerable to predators like kookaburras, um, butcher birds, and goshawks. And so fairy wrens tend to live in groups. And when one group member spots a predator, um, it actually gives out an alarm call to the others. Um, and in response, the others will race for cover or ignore the alarm and carry on in yeah. their activities. Do you have a, an example of how that, <laughs> how that alarm might sound? <laughs> I know why you're asking me, because in the conversation, there were, you, you could click and um, listen, to the, um, listen to these different <laughs> um, alarm calls. I might choose to, to not try and replicate them right now. <laughs> you can find them online, can you? <laughs> yeah, you can find Point them online. online. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so because behavior um, of these birds can actually be influenced by age and size, um, they, this study followed the same males 
over time and tested them before this color change happened when they were brown and afterwards when they were blue. Um, they used different color leg bands and tracked these same birds over a period of time. And they tested the birds' response to alarm calls um, by sneaking up on them in their um, natural habitat and broadcasting these fairy wren alarm calls um, that Lyndon uh, mentioned um, to, uh, through portable speakers. And so they have low-danger ones, and they also have high-danger ones, you know, depending on how immediate this perceived threat is. And so they found that the fairy wrens were actually more cautious when they were blue. So they fled more often after hearing the low-danger alarm compared to the brown um, birds, and they took longer to emerge from hiding after fleeing in response. They are pretty so easy to spot ones. when yeah. they're blue. Yeah, that exactly. little beautiful bit of, it's, it's just such, such a bright blue, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so they they found that the um, the fairy wrens also spent more time scanning their surroundings and less time foraging compared to the brown wrens. And so um, this means that the fairy wrens perceive themselves to be at a higher risk when they're bright blue and they adjust their behavior accordingly. So the second finding from the study, and possibly my favorite one, um, is that the fairy wrens um, adjust their behavior according to the color of other wrens in the group. So you know how I mentioned the, the blue ones change their behavior. But they also found that the brown ones did as well. So they found that when a blue male was nearby, the other brown wrens were less responsive to the, to the alarm calls and devoted less time to keeping a lookout. And this, they think this could be because the fairy wrens blew the bluebirds as colorful decoys in the event of an attack. And so, <laughs> so they're throwing them under, under the, the bus. bus. <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. So if the, yeah, the predators are biased towards attacking the most conspicuous animal, um, then the brown birds are taking advantage of the um, greater time that the bluebirds spend looking at the surroundings. And essentially the blue ones are basically just keeping a, keeping a lookout. Um, and so the, yeah, the, while the bluebirds have the best chance of attracting females, they might actually be a bit too busy, um, Scanning the surroundings for predators. I love to it. Take I, advantage of I've that. always <laughs> loved these birds, but I love them even more now. I yeah, think that so is so cool. The, the, the willingness to sacrifice a member of the tribe yeah. for and the good the, of the whole the tribe. The prettiest ones too. The, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Chuck yeah. the pretty ones under <laughs> the bus. Yeah. I'm all for it. Yeah. There should be more of it in more <laughs> I, species. I didn't realize that they changed color. I actually thought yeah. the blue ones were, were just blue the males. all year round, just yeah. hopping around being blue and trying to attract females. I didn't realize that they changed yeah. color. How interesting. I've, I've worked hard at photographing these little buggers down at the organ pipes. National Park, and they are really good at knowing when you're sneaking up on them. And I mean, I'm not one of these photographers who, you know, takes a shot at 200 yards. I mean, for me, even with my little SLR, you know, I'm pretty good at it, you know, from all my astronomy stuff. But I can tell you, the moon is much easier to photograph than a blue fairy wren. <laughs> just, the moon, it just, look, it doesn't stay still, folks, but it moves slow. Well, it doesn't move slow, it moves faster, but it's, it's easier. Maybe you need to, you need easier. to get some tips from these researchers who are sneaking yeah. around as speakers in, yeah, the, yeah. in the habitat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're dressed as giant fairy oh. wren though when they're doing it. Dr. Catherine, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, I could not go past the story this week published in the New England Journal of Medicine about air pollution. And this is an absolutely huge study, including 60 million people. So it's a, a, wow. a very large it's a country. Study. It is. It's almost all of America. In fact, or three Australians. Yeah, yeah. It's very big. It's um. In fact, it's ninety-seven percent of people aged over sixty-five in America. So oh, wow. it is the, yep. the majority of the elderly population. And this research was conducted um, by a group at Harvard by Quinn Dye and colleagues, and they were looking at uh, the impact of air pollution on early death. But in particular, what made this study unique is they were looking at the impact of low levels of air pollution that are within the national standards of, of what is 
is technically considered safe. So the study, as I mentioned, included people over the age of 65 and they were able to retrieve Medicare records or claims, which is why it was such a big study. So they were looking at claims people had made over the period of 2000 to 2012 Mm -hmm. and they could control for many other factors. And then what they did is the group had made an exposure prediction model, which they developed using using satellite-based measurements and also computer simulation and looking at air pollution so that they could actually predict the air pollution to every kilometre across uh, across the entire country in America. And, and other research has not been able to capture such a wide amount, often in areas that are unmonitored. So this, this really captured air pollution across the entire country and, and included rural and remote areas that are often missed out. And then what they could do is link up the Medicare claims with the sort of the air pollution. In particular, they were looking at exposure to airborne fine particular matter pollution. And look at the link. And the concerning thing about this study was that exposure to these low levels of air pollution, which are below or within current standards in America, uh, set by the US Environmental Protection Agency, does increase the chance of lower, uh, does increase the chance of early death. Wow. So they're in fact really not, not good enough for standards. And there are call for the standards to be even stricter. In, in fact, the researchers suggested that if we could lower the standards for the airborne fine particular matter by just one microgram per cubic metre nationwide, we would save 12,000 lives a year. Wow. And also they were looking at ozone, and if that could be lowered by just one part per billion nationwide, so this is across America, we would save 1,900 lives every year. Whoa. So this Pretty is really quite significant. Yeah. Uh, and it is a concern because obviously those those standards are set there, and we we think that it, it's for safety of of the population. But in fact, this this new evidence coming out on a huge sample of people shows that actually it's not not uh, it is not safe, and and air pollution is linked to even low levels of air pollution to Jeez. early death. You know, years ago, and I'm talking 17 years ago, some people said I was crazy because I had two requirements for where I bought a block of land and build a house. One was above 100 metres. Lyndon will know why. <laughs> above sea level. Safe bet. Anyway, you know, I just want coastal territory in 50 years. Um, and second was northwest of the city. Again, Lyndon will know why. Because most of our weather comes from the north or the west at you know, various times of year. And I don't want to breathe in everyone else's crap. And, you know, this is yeah. this is really interesting. If you look at where the majority of Melbourne's population live relative to some of industry and so forth, it's all downwind all downwind and you only have mm. to go out in the bay for five minutes in a boat and have a look at the city and you'll see this big plaque line that runs across to the right yeah not good mm. all right so it's a concern it, it just shows the importance of looking at this yeah and even small amounts yeah small, absolutely small amounts these yeah. are what we consider to be has been set as safe and the standards yeah. and and it's still Obviously not good not. enough yeah well um some news out of japan they're going to the moon yeah, they've announced that they're uh, they're looking to put an astronaut on the moon around the year 2030, and uh, they'll be using. Uh, well, they're hoping that because NASA's putting up um, an orbiting space station around the moon in 2025, that's their plan. It's part of their pathway to Mars. That they'll be able to sort of bootstrap off the back of that and then um, put someone down on on uh, the moon, which would be pretty cool. Uh, we haven't been there in 50 years, so you know. Not that it's changed much because <laughs> nothing happens. Uh, but, you know, this is, there's a lot of, lot of countries at the moment that are pushing their space programs, especially China. Um, China's really moving fast. But I think it'd be interesting to, to do that again. And, and yeah. And so spe- are they looking for anything in particular or is it basically 
as a stepping stone? Well, I think it's it's partly a stepping stone, but also there's a lot of moon science that really hasn't been sorted out. I mean, you've got to remember the last time we did work on the moon, it was with the technology of the 1950s and 60s. And yeah. so, you know, if you think of the sort of stuff that we can do now by comparison, even just analysis of, of moon materials, I mean, we're still analysing rocks from the moon from 50 years ago. You know, people are finding interesting things. So I think getting back there and really looking at some of that detail will be pretty cool. So, yeah, for yeah. sure. Triple. You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo here on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Professor Peter Scales. He's the Director of Engagement at the Melbourne School of Engineering and a Professor of Engineering. How are you, Peter? Good Good morning. Really well. It's uh, been, what, a couple of years since you've been in? Uh, about 15, I think. <laughs> Feels like yesterday. Uh, maybe because I see you on campus every now and then. Um, now, you, you're actually starting... Well, this, this week, actually, it's happening. You're running this amazing Indigenous program um, with engineering for high school kids. Run us through what that's about and, and who's involved. Yeah, so last year we started a thing called VIEWS, which is Victorian Indigenous Engineering School, uh, winter school actually, and it's it's based upon the summer school that's run out of University of New South Wales and, and Sydney. It's been running for 21 years, highly mm-hmm. successful. Now I've got about 50 participants that come in every year and, and we decided to start something in Melbourne between four unis in Melbourne, Monash, Swinburne, RMIT Melbourne, led by Melbourne, and the idea is that we bring year 11, year 12 Indigenous students from all over Australia and just expose them to engineering. Hmm. The main aim basically is to get more Indigenous Australian students into the STEM area and get them qualified, basically okay. in tertiary qualifications. And, yeah. and in terms of, ex- I mean, you know, you guys are fantastic, but exposure to engineering, I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you expose them to? What sort of stuff do they do? Oh, they do lots of good fun, actually. Actually, I'd love to be involved in the whole program for the whole week myself because it's just really good fun. We, each of the universities take them for one day. Okay. And and then Arup Engineering, which is an engineering group, takes them for, for one day as well. On, on Monday, they will go to um, Monash University and they will do a lot of work on renewable energy. They build renewable energy kits and mm. do a whole range of stuff. They go to RMIT uh, and they've got construction and, and building type projects. At Swinburne University, they're going to do a whole lot of work on air quality and heat island effects in cities. And they're also going to be uh, sitting in the flight simulator, so doing work with Qantas on, on aeronautics and flight simulation and everything like that, which See, is once like, again good fun. Sign me up for that. That'd yeah, cool. I think yeah. I'd, li- I'd love to play in that. Yeah. See if I can crash a plane or do something. <laughs> or land it on a river. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. yeah, if you're good yeah. enough. Yeah, if you're good enough, yeah. And and so, I mean, in terms of the hands-on stuff, I mean, so at Melbourne, let's... What, so let's Melbourne, yeah, what are we doing at Melbourne? We're, we're actually we're actually going to do an exercise in biomechanics with them. So at, at Melbourne, the theme is, is biomedical engineering mm-hmm. and the link between um, the engineering side of, of biomedicine and, and the clinical side. And so we're going to do some work on... A number of things. The first of them is is around biomechanics. We do a lot of work on biomechanics, and we're actually going to dissect a knee, right. a pig knee, actually, and we're going to get them to dissect a knee just to see how the biomechanics of a, of, of a joint works, which people take for granted. But mm. it's interesting. You know, we we hear on the football that you know someone's done their ACL. Well, let's get in and see what it really looks like. Mm. And uh, so we'll do that as well as expose them to a whole range of other areas of, of biomedical engineering. Hmm. 
Just that sounds like an amazing week. The engineers who are who are working with the students for that week, do they get any training or preparation or kind of cultural prep to to help them communicate better with the students when they come? We're doing a number of programs. Nearly every one of the people who are involved in the program have actually done work on uh, Indigenous Australian programs before. I don't know if there's formal training as such, but certainly um, they're all they're all done quite a lot of work. We work with uh, Warra High School um, in this space um, and run a lot of classes, etc. So, and we've got people from each of the universities who are Indigenous uh, mentors there for the whole week as well. Hmm. And how is it that students are able to be part of it? Do they sort of identify that they're interested in engineering or are they chosen? It, what's the process there? Yeah, it's it's both of those. They We put out an advertisement just like the Sydney group does uh, to ask for people who are doing maths and sciences at year 9, 10 and 11 and for those that might be interested in an engineering and IT pathway and to say that this is available and that advertisement goes out in in january it's starting to be be known now that this is going to happen every year because we ran it last year and we're running again this year we'll run it again next year and and people apply and and the applications come in and from those applications we we then choose the people who uh, are going to be part of the program yeah so what's the distribution geographically then of the people? So all over the place. Basically two from South Australia, three from New South Wales, mm. Western Australia, Queensland. We've actually only got one person from Victoria this year. Right. So it's Victorian <laughs> Indigenous Engineering Winter School and we've only got one local, which is actually not exactly what we want. We don't have anyone from Tasmania. The actual school holidays don't overlap. It's right. actually quite difficult to oh, get the yes. school holidays to overlap yes. with all of the states, but it's as good as we can do. And, and Peter, you said, um, I mean, it sounds fabulous, but you said uh, you ran it last year. I mean, are you starting to look at what the outcomes were? I mean, did, all, did all of them last year go, Jesus, I'm not doing engineering? <laughs> or or, or what's, what's been the... Because these, these students, I assume by that's a year later now, are starting to choose where they want to go and what they want to do, or maybe have even transitioned to university. Yeah, some of them already transitioned. So we've already had... Uh, Two come into University of Melbourne. Right. One went into arts law, which we would have liked that person to go into engineering, but <laughs> yep. that's a great outcome. Yeah, yeah, it's still good. Yep. Uh, one's on an engineering pathway. One of the others is on an engineering pathway at University of Western Australia, and we think there's quite a few of the others are on engineering pathways at other universities in Australia. So already the program, we can say, has been successful there. If we look mm. at... The, the Bachelor of Science Extended Program, which is a, a program to to bring Indigenous Australian students into engineering and at University of Melbourne, the numbers are increasing dramatically in that mm. program, and this is part of that whole effort. Uh, now, before we let you go, we should uh, just briefly touch on your your work. What are you up to these days? Because uh, we we spoke a long time ago, and you were working on sewage. Is it still? Are you still into that stuff? Uh, I mean, when I say that, I mean that, you know, in I'm the nicest not, possible not, way. I'm not, I'm not into it. <laughs> I still work on sewage. I, I'm mainly working on, on water recycle these days. So I've done yep. a, a large project on, on water recycle. I'm trying to set up systems in the world that make it easier for people to recycle water and for us to break what I call break the pollution cycle. So if mm -hmm. I go to somewhere in Indonesia like a Jakarta or a Surabaya, no wastewater treatment, all their water comes straight out of the river, 
massive health effects across mm. the city from that. How do I actually take that water and turn it into drinking water and, and break that pollution cycle? And so we've done a lot of work over the last uh, about five years now, including setting up actual operating plants that can demonstrate that. Because people say, oh, well, the engineering's easy. But until you can mm. actually give someone they can touch and feel it and say, actually, I could do this, it, it doesn't happen. So mm. part of my effort there is not just to do the engineering but to get it out and, and start to get it used. So we're, we're starting to work in some of the big cities of the world and saying, can I actually stop them throwing their wastewater away, reuse it, and actually produce proper drinking water for the city? Sometimes they're related. Sometimes we're just taking the drinking water and actually making sure that it's safe. Other yep. times we're saying, in actual fact, the wastewater is the feed to their drinking water. How yeah. do I make my drinking water safe? Yeah. And presumably low cost and, and relatively simple. I mean, you know, all these things, you know, whenever I hear the term reverse osmosis, I just think energy intensive. I mean, so presumably that's part of it. That's part of it. Uh, there's, there's what we call the, the very low cost super sustainable solutions that aren't actually producing safe water. Right. <laughs> that sounds, yeah, that that's sounds one good. side of... Sounds like government program. Yeah, that's yeah. one side of the world. And we're on the let's produce guaranteed quality water to WHO guidelines um, at any time for any feed. Hmm. That's a six-barrier system. Uh, Energy-wise, it's still only about a quarter of the cost of desalination. It mm-hmm. does have reverse osmosis in it in a lot of cases. But you're not actually getting rid of a lot of salt. Right, yeah. And that's where the cost of reverse yeah. osmosis comes in. So uh, multiple barriers, making sure that what comes in, no matter what it is, I can say, I can absolutely assure you, if you drink this water for the next 80 years, if you're a child, it will not affect your health. Yeah, that's a big thing. You must work closely with a lot of organisations in those different countries. Does that mean you're a bit of a politician as well as an engineer then? Ultimately, this is about politics because there's what I call the bottom-up solutions and there's the top-down solutions. And the top-down solutions, which are the solutions that are going to really get employed across very large cities, are only going to come through politics. Mm. And and so we're working with uh, councils, government agencies, uh, development banks, a whole range of people to try to get these things implemented. It is always about cost. The cost is too high to do it. I always say the global cost of the health effects from this are actually massive. And and one of the really big problems is that they're they're undefined in a lot of cases. And if you really define them, the cost is not too high anymore. Yeah, we're not not good as societies looking at long-term costs that are related, but, you know, maybe difficult to connect. Yeah, and Mm. and they're not quantified. If if a child is sick from diarrhoea in Jakarta and they're in hospital... No one really quantifies what the effect on the society of that is. Yeah. It's just another sick kid in Jakarta. Yeah. So I, I think we need to do that a lot more. Yeah. Peter, look, it's, it's great to hear you doing that work. And I think, um, especially here in Melbourne where we take, uh, our water quality for granted, it's, it's good to hear that this stuff is going on and being, and being led out of, um, out of the School of Engineering at University of Melbourne. Thanks so much for coming in. We'll see you again in 15 years, maybe before. Yeah. Hopefully before and, uh, 
hopefully views goes very well this week. I'm yeah, sure good, it will. Good luck with that, and we'll um, we'll touch base uh, about the uh, the outcomes of that because I think that it's a it's a fantastic program, and and uh, I, I you know it's great you're doing it for Indigenous students. I think there's a whole lot of students probably listening who'd also love to do it that aren't Indigenous because it, be, it sounds like a really hands-on approach. So Peter, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank you, Professor Peter Scales is the director of engagement at the Melbourne School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Three. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to 3RRR. In the studio, we have Professor Ben Solomon, who is from the Department of Medical Oncology at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, and also Dr. Claire Whedon. She's just been given her doctorate recently um, from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Welcome to RRR, guys. Thanks very much, Dr. Shane. Thanks for having me. Um, now, we got you both in because you're doing the two ends of, of this piece of work, and I might start with you, Ben, to give us a bit of an idea of the type of cancer. This is the second most common type of lung cancer that you're working on, is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, so lung cancer kills more people than any other cancer in the world. In in Australia, it accounts for about 20% of all, um, lung ca- of all deaths from cancer. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, we used to treat all patients with lung cancer pretty much the same way. Everyone got the same treatment, which was chemotherapy. Yep. But recently, we've begun to identify that not all cancers are the same. They look different down the microscope. And more importantly, they have different molecular drivers. And if if we can identify which molecular driver is responsible for a tumor, and if we happen to have a drug that works to block that driver, we can get good results for patients. Mm. So in, in terms of the, the chemotherapy you, you referred to, I mean, what sort of success rate do you, I mean, because we're not just, one thing we have to be clear about here, we're not just talking about smokers. I mean, this is, a lot of different people get lung cancer for various reasons. So what sort of success rates do you have with chemotherapy with lung cancers? Sure. So I think the point you made about smokers and non-smokers is really important. Um, in, uh, we see probably about one in five cancers uh, occur in non-smokers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so it affects the, the whole population. Yeah. And chemotherapy is not particularly effective. It, um, it works in about 20 or 30% of, uh, patients to shrink their cancers, but almost invariably the tumors grow back after right. a period of time. So we do need more effective treatments. And, and what's, I mean, how do you know, or, you know, what sort of early symptoms would you get? Is it sort of emphysema type symptoms or what, what sort of puts you on the road to thinking, hey, this person might have cancer? Yeah. So that's a big issue issue with lung cancer in that it often doesn't cause symptoms until very late so often the cancer is spread from the lungs to other parts of the body when we're not able to cure it Um, i think that's a really good point then is that a lot of people with lung cancer um don't actually present um with surgically curable disease and Mm. that really contributes to the deadliness of lung cancer so knowing symptoms and perhaps um being able to develop tests to detect lung cancer earlier are really important things to improve survival outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Is there, it's interesting, I've watched, you know, the last 10, 20 years, the way in which the public has had interest in various cancers and, you know, certain cricketers' wives have, have had an amazing impact on, you know, the way in which breast cancer has been, um, you know, addressed in terms of finances and so forth. But lung cancer to me still has that, oh, smoker, smoker's problem, you caused it yourself. And is there a lack of support and finances towards research in lung cancer? Is it, is yeah. it underdone? 
Yeah, so um, a, a recent study came out by Cancer Australia which showed that of tumour-specific research funds, lung cancer actually gets less than 5% of research funding. Really? And that's completely um, unproportionate to the amount of um, cancer deaths that cause. So there's a real need to put more funding into lung cancer research and send a message, no, it's not just a smoker's disease. Mm. People have quit smoking and done the right thing can still get lung cancer and there's also a lot of never smokers who get lung cancer yeah and i think there's a lot of um uh of these patients who are now speaking out about um their experience and the stigma that they have with their disease and yeah. so i think those um people are really important to change yeah. and, and, and to be clear we still let smokers use our hospital system so if you're going to let them use the healthcare system at all you let them use all of it you know it's um yeah linden find the microphone here it is i found it <laughs> so ben you mentioned that it's the, uh, lung cancer is the biggest cancer in the world are these new techniques that you're working on will they be easily applicable in developing countries where as Catherine, dr Catherine was talking about before air pollution is a big issue do you think these new techniques will be easily used in developing world yeah um so great question and, and i think um there's perhaps a greater pro- Proportional um, morbidity and mortality from lung cancer in the developing world, for example, where in Australia we're actually doing a really good job with reducing smoking rates. So the smoking uh, rate in Australia is about 16%, whereas in places like India and China, the the incidence is actually still rising, mm-hmm. so it will have a greater proportional impact. And... Um, Treatments are improving, but treatments are expensive and access to treatments around the world is, is problematic. I think one of the biggest um, uh, biggest ways we can impact on the burden of lung cancers through public health measures such as controlling things like smoking, controlling air pollution, uh, and and that that in itself will have a have a big impact. Mm. Now, I want to I want to jump into what you guys are doing in terms of the actual work because you you gave me a little lesson out in the green room earlier, which was very helpful. Patient derived xenographs, go. <laughs> what are we talking about here? I, I might just start. So one one big issue with uh, cancer treatments is we hear every week about a new breakthrough in the lab, mm. uh, new, new drug X, you know, cures cancer, and and, uh, and unfortunately that doesn't translate to reality once these drugs get to clinical trials. Mm. Only about five percent of drugs that look promising in the lab actually get their way through phase one, two and three trials to d- become um, approved therapies that really impact on lung cancer patient, and, and patients. I mean, and just stop you there for a second, Ben, because, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed with that is you may have one of those drugs that works for 13% of people, and that's unacceptable. They, they'll dump that, right? I mean, if it's if the efficacy is too low, even though for that 13% it was fantastic, um, these companies will, will dump that on the basis of it's it's not an acceptable level and they, they can't work out who the 13% is. That's right. So I think that's the key to it. If you can work out who that 13% is, that's great and go for it. Treat those 13% and don't treat the other 87% of patients with that drug and you'll get really good results mm. for those um, patients. And that's, in fact, the direction that lung 
cancers gone. We try to identify different populations and come up with different treatments. Now, our work um, focuses on a type of lung cancer called squamous cell carcinoma where we've been pretty unsuccessful in identifying treatments. So Claire was um, Claire was looking at uh, using some very sophisticated mass models at uh, a particular molecular target called um, uh, the fibroblast growth factor receptor. Yeah, so this is the fibroblast growth factor 1 or FGFR1 and the current clinical trials suggested that if you had high levels of gene amplification of this target, you might respond to a drug that inhibits this um, protein, the FGFR. But what we were able to show is that, in fact, these patients, this was a, a not a good biomarker to identify who would respond to the treatment. Mm. We found, in fact, high RNA expression of FGFR1 was a way better predictor of who would respond to the treatment. So that means there are patients um, out there who might be receiving the drug who it, it might, might, won't work on these patients. Yeah. And um, we also show that there's actually higher numbers of people with lots of FGFR RNA. So there's people out there who wouldn't be in the clinical trials who probably should be. Hmm. Is there, you hear about these sorts of, these new ways of stratifying patients, I suppose, and, and, and working out exactly who, who will work. Are there groups of patients for whom they fall in no categories? And if so, is there any consistency, you know, something linking them? Because... I, I can imagine it must be an extraordinarily difficult scenario, especially as an oncologist, Ben, when you, when you talk to some of these patients and say, well, look, you're not in any of these groups, so none of our treatments actually are applicable to you. I mean, that's, that's a real, you've already got the bad luck of getting cancer, but that's got to be tough. It, it is, and, uh, and that, that certainly does apply to groups of patients, uh, that we can't find targeted therapies for. Actually, interestingly, recently we've got a new class of therapies which we call immune therapies or immunotherapies, which, which can work in some of those patients. Again, we, we can't necessarily work out who they are, but, um, uh, but this, this concept of stratification is likely to extend to those people as, as well. Mm. So the work you're doing around testing and, and looking at predictors of response to treatment and then and then actually delivering this type of treatment, where is it sitting in terms of the, the clinical trials research world compared to actually widespread clinical practice? Is it is it widespread, for example, if someone was diagnosed with lung cancer a couple of two hundred kilometres from Melbourne, can they access this type of testing and treatment at the moment? Yeah, so right now, regardless of where you are, whether you're in Mildura or whether in, you're in Melbourne, if you're diagnosed with lung cancer before you start treatment, it's uh, essential to get molecular testing of your tumour. Currently, there are only two targeted therapies that are approved, one directed at a gene called EGFR, the other at a gene called ALK, and it's important to get those results before someone starts treatment with chemotherapy. And the the range of targets that we look for is is going to increase steadily over time. Mm. Presumably, then, this approach will um, spread to other forms of cancer as well. I mean, it can't be just lung cancer that this will work for. It it does already, and uh, lung cancer is probably a little bit further than some other types of cancers, but but absolutely. Mm. Look, exciting stuff. I think uh, every time we interview someone here on something to do with cancer over the last five years we've seen these just steps moving forward and it's really exciting i think and all i can say to you is the same thing i say to all cancer researchers hurry up <laughs> so thanks so much for coming in and uh, good luck with the work thanks very much thanks a lot
Professor Ben Solomon from the Department of Medical Oncology at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Dr Claire Whedon from the Walter Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. 102.7 Oh, we're back. You're listening to Triple R. You, you're going to tell us about some new vaccine band-aid or something, Catherine. Yeah, I was fascinated to read this week. It came out in The Lancet, some research around how uh, researchers are testing being able to deliver the influenza vaccination, uh, which m- many people, most people in Australia have every time just before the, the cold season comes around. It's normally delivered via a needle, an intramuscular injection, which is delivered into your sort of your shoulder, your deltoid muscle. Pretty simple, uh, quick, safe and very effective way to deliver the influenza vaccine. But researchers have t- tested be- how to deliver this using a Band-Aid type approach, mm. which I find absolutely fascinating. So, and, and awesomely good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for people who are scared of needles, this is a great option. Who's not? Oh, no, I, who likes I, needles? I don't mind oh. them. I don't I mean, like needles. Is there any honest <laughs> person who says, hey, I'm looking forward to getting my needle today? I mean, really? Yeah. So this Band-Aid looks a bit like a Band-Aid. You place it over the wrist. Uh, it has a 100 hard cone-shaped micro needles, which sounds a lot worse than it actually looks, I think. You can barely, micro. barely yeah, see these. Still needles, though. We're not yet. Baby needles. (laughs) They are made of uh, uh, alcohol, sugar and the vaccine and then they dissolve and deliver the the vaccine uh, to the person. And and this was a phase one clinical trial, very early work. They had 100 healthy people who hadn't received the flu vaccination from the 2014 season. They had four groups. One group received the usual usual needle. One group had the self-applied patch that they delivered it themselves. One group had the patch delivered by a health professional and the other had, had the combination of everything. And basically it was safe, it was effective. Um, side effects were very minimal, uh, really comparable to receiving the needle. So mm. it was, um, it's potentially a great application for this, particularly for developing countries where yeah. we can't yeah. get these resources out. And, and the, as you know, the influenza, uh, it, it, it causes deaths. It's a huge problem, particularly for at-risk populations. So getting more people to be able to be vaccinated is really important. I agree. And until they saw that, the hypersprays, I'm good for a band-aid <laughs> needle. <laughs> Dr Lauren, got a couple of minutes. Yes. Oh, I'll talk quickly. Um, so there's a study published in Science this week about the um, specific mechanism that petunias use to help themselves smell sweet. So uh, maybe I'm just really ignorant, but I always just kind of thought that plants just smelled nice um, because, you know, their scents just waft into the air. Um, but this study actually showed that um, petunias in particular use a molecule called the transporter protein to help them move the compounds along, so from inside the flower to um, the delightful smells that we smell. And so although we might think that you know plants are just doing their job by smelling nice, they actually use scents to communicate. So the, the scent compounds can sort of attract insects and organisms that spread pollen, so that's the good um, thing that scents can do, or they help plants um, repel pests and plant-eating animals. And so the proteins identified in this study that transport scents could, you know, be used or modified to dial the amount of scent up or down so that plants could either attract um, the beneficial things or sort of better protect themselves um, from plant-eating animals. And, um, you know, these plants that maybe also don't smell could be engineered to smell, giving them a better shot at reproduction um, or survival. And so plants get their scents from volatile organic compounds, which can easily turn into gases in ambient temperatures. And in particular, petunias get their sweet smell from a mix of benzaldehyde, um, which is actually the same smell that gives um, cherries and almonds their fruity, nutty scent. Um, and nice smells, although, have a trade-off. So if these compounds build up inside the plant, they can actually damage the plant's cells. Hmm. So two years ago, researcher, researchers used computer simulations to look at the way the scent compounds moved. And they were able to show that the compounds actually cannot move out of cells fast enough on their own to avoid damaging the plant's cells. 
So they thought there must be something else that's shuttling these compounds out um, at a rate where it doesn't damage the cells. So this study looked for genetic changes as the plant developed from the budding stage, which sort of has low levels of these compounds, to um, the flower opening stage with a, with a higher level of these compounds. And they actually found that as the flower opened and the scent levels peaked, the specific gene um, went into overdrive, producing these proteins. Um, and they actually genetically engineered petunias to produce less of these proteins, which then meant that they produce less compound. And so this compound actually built up, causing cell damage mm. to the plant. Um, and this is there's actually been a lot of work in this area um, in the past to identify genes and proteins that generate scent compounds. And this is really the first study to have identified um, that a transporter protein um, is responsible for shuttling these compounds outside of a cell. So it's much more so, complex than yeah, I yeah. really would Just, have ever thought. Yeah, very smelly, smelly <laughs> stuff. So... Dr. Linden, good to see you again. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Dr. Lauren. Thanks for having see me. See you again soon. And Dr. Catherine. Thank I'll you. I'll see you after the show for that, uh, you know, problem with my back. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Liv's been doing our Twitter feed at a ridiculous rate. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to chat again next week. I think we've got Neil deGrasse Tyson next week. <gasps> so exciting. Oh, my God. Yeah, a bit nervous. I'll be right. It'll be okay. <laughs> Until then, have a great Sunday, everybody. Remember, science is everywhere. And keep tuning in to Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.